Hello and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm joined by Dr. Krista Noble as part of the mini-series on Maharishi Vedic Science. Dr. Noble is a professor of consciousness studies at MIU. In this episode, Dr. Noble discusses materialism versus consciousness and how our Western cosmology differs from that of the Vedic tradition. Krista then describes the seven states of consciousness as brought to light by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. We then discuss the three highest states of consciousness, which we collectively refer to as enlightenment, and the theory that enlightenment is our birthright. Then we discuss the Maharishi effect and the impact one's own thoughts can have on the collective consciousness. From there, we discuss the correlation between the Vedic literature and human physiology. We end the discussion on the concept of quantum entanglement and the outlook for world peace. Outro for this episode is called The Seven States of Consciousness. Outro is available for this and all episodes at entangledpodcast.substack.com. Music from the show available on the Spotify playlist, Entangled the Vibes. Please enjoy. everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Entangled. I'm super excited to be joined by Dr. Krista Noble as part of the Maharishi Vedic Sciences miniseries. Dr. Noble, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, I'm super excited to be chatting with you again. Uh, you were my first professor at MIU and just, you know, that first class on exploring consciousness was so life-changing for me and you know, it's only continued to compound as I've got to take more courses at MIU. So really excited to now circle back on a, a course that started about a year ago now. Wonderful. And so before we get into, you know, some of the basics of exploring consciousness and uh, Maharishi Vedic science, it'd be great to just learn a little bit more about your personal background and how you discover TM and uh, Maharishi International University. Sure. So I actually grew up in a family of meditators. My parents both practiced transcendental meditation um, and so I just grew up in that background, and my dad in particular had a passion for the philosophical side of it, so he'd read books like Maharishi's Commentary on the Bhagavad Gita with me when I was a kid. And then we just talked about philosophy at the dinner table all the time growing up, so it was just really familiar to me. So I started doing TM back when I was a kid, and um, I ended up doing my undergraduate degree at an unrelated school in an unrelated topic, so um, history at Hillsdale College. But uh, by the time I finished that, I realized that my real passion was for the Vedic knowledge, for this ancient Indian knowledge. And so I came to MIU, and there I did my master's degree in Marshi Vedic Science, which is the same program that you're in. And then I loved that so much that I went on to do my PhD. The topic of my dissertation was the consciousness-based paradigm of Marishi Vedic science and contrasting that with the mainstream physicalist paradigm. So contrasting the idea that everything emerges from consciousness, that consciousness is fundamental and primary, contrasting that with the view that everything comes out of matter, that, that consciousness all comes out of matter. But anyway, I, I finished uh, my PhD. Since then, I have taught at MIU and two other universities, and I've also enjoyed the opportunity to give talks at a variety of uh, conferences and, and schools, universities, um, so I'm really passionate about these subjects and always look forward to sharing them with new people. Awesome. Awesome. Well, and I think your dissertation topic is a great place to start. Um, and so 
you mentioned these things about materialist paradigm, consciousness paradigm. Could you dive into what exactly that means? Definitely. Um, so the mainstream paradigm of science is, comes, it has the idea in it that everything is physical in nature. And traditionally, that's been tied to the idea that everything is made of matter, that matter is fundamental, that everything is somehow reducible to matter. Um, now, that is that view that matter is fundamental, and it actually isn't even consistent with recent advances in modern physics, because we're finding that the more deeply you go into the nature of reality, even just through a sheerly physical lens, uh, things become less and less material. You know, we start talking about fields, non-local fields, a unified field. Um, but traditionally, that has been the view that that um, everything is made of matter. And one of the most challenging questions then, if everything is made of matter, is how does consciousness fit into that picture? How is it that something that's made of matter, that has all of these very concrete qualities, like a physical human brain, how does that produce a first-person perspective, a subjective experience? How does it, does it produce thoughts and emotions and perceptions? And um, it's something people have been struggling with in one form or another for hundreds of years, but especially now with materialism and physicalism um, being the mainstream paradigm, it's extremely difficult to explain how consciousness fits into that picture. Um, so yes, the, the Vedic... Um, view on this topic is that actually consciousness, intelligence in a, a non-local form is fundamental to reality and that it gives rise to matter. So it's um, turning the whole uh, view the other way around. Um, and so, yeah, from that viewpoint, matter, it's not that matter is an illusion, but matter would be seen as a way in which consciousness perceives itself, a way in which this non-local universal consciousness perceives itself, looks at itself. Um, that's a lot to, to chew on there, so I'll pause. Yeah. No, I think that's really helpful. And I think, um, as you mentioned, with, with a consciousness-based paradigm, it changes things so dramatically. And um, I'd be curious to get your thoughts as to, you know, it's it's been a so, hundred years or so since the development of quantum mechanics, right? And, and the smartest physicists in the world recognize that at the quantum mechanical level, there is no such thing as matter. So I'm curious why you think that despite that, the materialist paradigm has maintained such a strong grip on the on the consensus science. Oh, that's a good question. I think a lot of people think that there are only two potential views, at least in a Western context, that either you have a materialist view or you have some sort of traditional religious view. And they don't consider a traditional religious view to be compatible with science and modern advances in science. So they think, okay, it must be the other. And, you know, in uh, my writings and, and in, in these classes, I, I definitely want to emphasize the idea that there are other options out there. There are views here that don't have to align with a very strict, narrow religious doctrine by any means that are completely compatible with modern science, but that also aren't this more narrow-minded view that everything is somehow reducible to the material, to the physical. Yeah. And that um, was really uh, a game changing revelation for me in my own spiritual awakening. You know, I, I really dated to um, a point where I was introduced to a documentary that introduced me to ideas like the Maharishi effect, like the unified field of consciousness and the holographic universe. And because I was coming at it from a very materialist background, right, and had never considered that 
to your point that, you know, religious traditions could have any actual um, true cosmological understanding that we have just simply lost or forgotten or, you know, obfuscated. So, so that really helped to, to get me over that um, mental roadblock and, and start to understand like, wow, the implications of, of what Maharishi has taught are, are so vast and so profound. No, that's great to hear. Um, and, you know, we always enjoy as faculty members having students like yourself who'll bring these things up in their, their papers and their concept maps, all those different assignments, um, bring up these really big questions and wrestle with them. Um, that's really satisfying for us as teachers. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, and so why don't we start by talking about, you know, what is what are some of the basics of uh, the Vedic cosmology? Sure. Um, so if I'm using the terminology of Marishi Maheshogi, do they, have they heard yet at this point of the series who he is or anything about him? Um, yeah, they okay. will have, but if you wouldn't mind just giving maybe just two sentences in case someone's just listening to this episode. Sure. Um, so yeah, um, I'll be talking about, um, the Vedic tradition, which comes from ancient India, and I'll mostly be focusing on the teachings of Maharishi Maheshogi. Um, he was a monk who came to the West in recent times, and he, he brought the Transcendental Meditation Technique to the West. Um, but he tended to have a very uh, clear, simple, straightforward way of expressing some of these principles, these Vedic principles that go back thousands and thousands of years. So um, he, had, he had a nice way of putting things in terms that the Western mind can understand. So I think there's a lot of value to discussing things from his perspective. Um, so I'm sorry, you're, before we started talking about Maharishi specifically, you had a question. Of... Yeah. So then it was just uh, getting into, you know, what are um, the principles of Vedic uh, cosmology? Great. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll be using some of Maharishi's terminology here. Um, he talks about there being a field of pure existence or pure being. So something that's beyond the senses, um, something that is beyond our everyday experience for most of us with, you know, which is filled with concrete objects, sensory things, every everything's changing. Um, so he, drawing on the Vedic tradition, is talking about this abstract field, this ground of being, this pure existence, pure potentiality, which has a lot of parallels to the modern concept of a unified field. Um, he's talking about this level of reality that's beyond our sensory experience or our everyday perceptions. And so he would call that the absolute. And then, of course, we have the relative. That's the world of change. That's the world, the sensory world. Um, it's also the world, it includes the, the realm of our thoughts, um, our emotions, our perceptions. Anything that changes would be included within the relative um, so you can think of it all in layers, that there are concrete layers that you can see and touch and smell and all that. And then there are subtler layers of, of the mind. There's, um, you know, intuition and the intellect. You know, these are a little subtler than just our organs of perception, our eyes and our ears and stuff. It's a little subtler, a little more refined, a little less concrete, more abstract, less obvious in what they pick up. Um, so he talks, you know, the Vedic tradition talks about different levels of the mind. Um, and then it talks about at the basis of the mind, there being a level beyond thought. So a level of pure consciousness. And, you know, to most people that sounds very abstract. But the thing is, if you have a meditation te technique, such as transcendental meditation, 
it can allow the mind to very naturally go from those outer, concrete, external layers of the mind to just settle inward to quieter and quieter and quieter levels and to experience that pure consciousness, that source of thought. So that would be a state where there aren't any thoughts or any emotions or any perceptions. It's just like a very deeply peaceful state. Um, in the Vedic tradition, they refer to it as Sat-Chit-Ananda, which means eternal bliss consciousness. So it's just a state where consciousness is just awake and aware, but it doesn't have any particular object of perception, any particular object of focus. So going back to the, the Vedic cosmology, the claim is that that inner state of pure consciousness that anyone can reach if they have an appropriate technique is actually the same as this field of pure existence that I discussed a minute ago. So there's this level beyond the senses that underlies all of life, but also underlies our individual minds, our individual subjectivity. And so there's this level of unification where everything is one that's at the basis of both individual lines and uh, the physical world. It's interesting that physicists, you know, are, are comfortable accepting the idea that in the objective reality, right, there is this abstract field that, that um, you know, is the foundation of everything. But yet, for some reason, they make this distinction between the subjective reality and and think that that wouldn't also be beholden to those same to those same rules. Which you know, once you've been uh, awakened to like Vedic cosmology, it, it makes so much sense that they would naturally both the subjective and the objective are one and the same. But but yet, why do you think that you know most most scientists have not gotten over that? Um, philosophical roadblock that it could also be the same for the subjective reality? It's a great question. I think a lot of people, when they talk about consciousness, they think about it in within the field of biology. And to be honest, a lot of biologists aren't really operating within this more quantum framework. So a lot of biologists are still kind of stuck on the level of classical physics, you know, billiard ball type interactions. It's um, biologists haven't really incorporated into their field so much these more advanced quantum physics and such um so i think if you're seeing it from a, a classical point of view then of course you're going to explain the consciousness as being nothing more than a byproduct of brain interactions and you're not going to be looking for any more fundamental source to it mm -hmm. yep that makes sense and it's interesting what you bring up about biology still being on the kind of classical mechanical level and you know i think you say the same about most fields of science outside of physics today right astronomy medicine etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think that is um that's part of what has just been so exciting for me about miu is just how profound the implications are across all all fields of science so i'm curious are there uh are there areas in in science more broadly that you think are going to really benefit from flipping that script and thinking about it from consciousness first perspective Absolutely. I, I think for any discipline, it could be science, it could be any of the humanities, it could be a social science. I think just having a more holistic view of life, a more complete view of life is naturally going to have effects and trickle down and have implications. I mean, in, in politics, and in, in pretty much every area of life, it's just life isn't segmented in little boxes it's all integrated so if you try to look at it just in tiny little boxes all the time you're going to be missing some pretty um pretty important things yep totally totally i think that makes sense and i also think that's why 
part of the um, reason that um, conventional science hasn't progressed more uh, quickly towards a consciousness-based paradigm is because they're all so siloed and, you know, the biologists are only looking at the very specific things. They're missing what the implications that modern physicists have found, what that actually means to their field of study, for example. No, I completely agree. You know, if, if all the knowledge is just contained within one field and there isn't really much interdisciplinary interaction going on, then it, it gets a yeah. bit uh, limiting. Yeah, totally. Now, I think one of the things, one of the um, first lessons we had in, in uh, our Exploring Consciousness class was, was uh, Maharishi's writing about uh, discussing Einstein's theory of relativity, right? And how, you know, his theory was correct, but what he was missing was he was only discussing uh, really like the gross realm of the senses. He was missing this more, more uh, pure, eternal field of the absolute. And, and that's what he was kind of looking for with a theory of everything towards the end of his, his life. So I'm curious, could you expand on, on that? I'm sure I kind of butchered the explanation there. <laughs> uh, no, no worries. But yes, there has been this, this march in recent times towards having some sort of unified theory, and Albert Einstein was certainly one of the people doing that. But, you know, there's been this desire to have mathematical formulas, all of that, to be able to explain things on every level of life, um, that, you know, these, these levels shouldn't be looked at only in isolation from each other. And if you can derive mathematical formulas that describe not only the unified field, but quantum mechanics and classical physics, then you have a much more thorough, useful, and complete understanding of what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, you mentioned the the fact that, you know, Maharishi taught with transcendental meditation, you can directly experience, you know, that higher state of the absolute. And so maybe just uh, diving in a little bit further, could you explain what are the, the seven states of consciousness? Sure. Um, so yes, Maharishi lays out in his teachings seven states. Uh, the first three are very familiar to everyone. They're just the states of waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. So most of us, our whole lives are just cycling through these three states. Um, but it's interesting because, um, well, first of all, in the Vedic texts, they talk about additional higher states. And then there's also more and more modern science to support this idea. Um, so the fourth state, so beyond those three states of waking, dreaming, and sleeping, the fourth state is what Maharishi would call transcendental consciousness. Um, that would be that state that I alluded to earlier, where the mind has settled down from the very active surface levels, just quieter, quieter, quieter levels, and finally reached a level where there's no thought. So that would be that level of transcendental consciousness. So it's a very deep, peaceful, blissful state. But the mind just, it's its aware only of its own, it, the consciousness is aware only of itself. There's not aware of any particular object of perception. And it's a hard thing to describe, you know, Maharishi uses the analogy of a strawberry, that if you've never tasted a strawberry, all the intellectual descriptions of a strawberry in the world will never convey that taste to you. And so there is an element of direct experience being extremely important to even fully grasp what we could mean by this transcendental consciousness. But again, there's thoughts of meditation that can bring that out. Um, so that would be the, the fourth state. So the next state would be what Maharishi calls cosmic consciousness. And backing up a step, the way that develops, um, so if you're meditating regularly, you know, with the transcendental meditation technique, you do it twice a day for 20 minutes. Um, but if you're meditating regularly, your mind is becoming more and more familiar with that level of pure consciousness, that level beyond thought, that absolute level. 
And what happens is that over time, after each meditation session, a little bit of that quietness and that peace begins to linger during the day and to stay there even while the mind is active and the body is active. And so that happens to greater and to greater degrees over time. And eventually that pure silence, that bliss, it begins to coexist with all thoughts, all actions, um, even with deep sleep. So this is what they refer to as witnessing sleep. And um, there are scientific studies to back this up where um, people, there's a level of awareness all night long. It's not the level of the individual ego. It's not the level of, you know, I'm Chris Noble. It's this level of this pure consciousness, witnessing the sleep, the body getting rest, witnessing dreams, witnessing the waking state. Did you want to cut in? Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, it's it's interesting how you're describing it too, because I had the benefit of taking um, the first advanced TM technique, which, you know, is known as the night technique. And it really has changed my experience of sleep in, in some very profound ways, right? To, to, so anyway, yeah, that just, just has been really cool. <laughs> no, it's great. Um, yes, you know, I'm mostly talking about the transcendental meditation technique, but there are other advanced techniques, as, as Jordan is alluding to, um, that can further this development and speed up this, this process. But um, yeah, Marisha uses the analogy of dyeing cloth, that if you dip cloth, um, white cloth into yellow dye, um, and then you hang it up in the sun. Um, most of the dye, the color of the dye fades away, and so you have to dip it again. But if you keep dipping it, that color becomes more solid. So he uses this as an analogy for meditation, that meditation is like dipping the cloth, and then hanging it up is like coming out into activity again and being um, engaging with the external world. So most of that color fades away at first, but there's a little bit left. And over time, that color just becomes richer and richer and richer. So again, eventually what you get is this coexistence of this state of pure consciousness with thoughts, emotions, perceptions, and activity so that it's with you 24-7. And again, on both, um, both transcendental consciousness and cosmic consciousness, there's a lot of research to back these up, um, the, the existence of these states, um, not only from a subjective standpoint, but also from a neurophysiological standpoint, that these states have distinct neurophysiological markers that you can measure with EEG and and other instruments. Yeah, and that's what's, you know, really, um, again, I think what um, was so, one of the, you know, many ways that uh, Maharishi's teachings have been so effective is that number one, you're getting the direct experience of it as you talk about with transcendental consciousness, right? You don't have to take some professor's word for it, right? You're experiencing it directly. But then you also get to learn the intellectual understanding and here's how the Vedic philosophers understood it. Here's what how this applies to modern science, right? So I think it's that holistic kind of approach to consciousness uh, makes it makes it that much more self-evident. Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of emphasis in the Vedic tradition on how experience and intellectual knowledge support one another and how each creates more thirst for the other. So they're both integral parts of um, evolution, of spiritual evolution. Yeah. Wow. So you talked about uh, the fifth state, CC. Could you then describe uh, what, what happens as you continue to develop consciousness to higher states? Yes. Um, so in that state of cosmic consciousness, you have that, that steadiness. You have that pure consciousness that just never leaves, that it provides a very solid anchor for, for your life. 
And um, on that basis, um, because the body is now free of accumulated stresses, um, it's just it allows you to perceive the world with greater and greater clarity. So, so all the development thus far has been mostly on the internal level, mostly affecting your own experiences, um, but not expect uh, not so much how you perceive the world. But once the body has been uh, and the mind have been ridden of all of these accumulated stresses over time, um, you can just perceive the world much more clearly, and you begin to notice subtler, more refined. Um, aspects of that world around you. So the, the term Marishi uses the celestial perception, uh, but it's often associated with uh, the perception of light in one's surroundings. But it's just perceiving the, the most beautiful, the most refined, the most subtle uh, value of every object that you look at or, or hear. It's, it's on the level of all the senses. And this isn't a matter of mood making. It's not a matter of trying to do that um, to create this experience that goes for all the higher states. Um, they're not things that you can fake or, or talk yourself into or, um, you know, just adopt a philosophy and have that. It's something that has a physiological basis. It's something that develops naturally over time. Um, but anyway, so that that's this quality of, of celestial perception or, or refined perception. Just seeing um, more and more a level of, of unity pervading your surroundings, but this unity of these more, these finer values, these light, this light pervading your surroundings. Um, and so that, that dovetails smoothly into the highest state, um, from a Vedic perspective, which would be unity consciousness. And in unity consciousness, that's perceiving everything that exists as the expression of your own pure consciousness. So like we were talking about at the beginning of the talk, if there's, um, pure consciousness at the basis of the universe, um, that then everything that exists in the universe, it would be basically the expression of that pure consciousness. So Marishi will use the analogy of an ocean, that the ocean at its basis is silent and still, and then on the surface it's got these crashing waves, but it's all the same essence. And so, you know, originally in in the spiritual path, you'll, you're mostly immersed on that level of the crashing waves, um, but then with techniques for transcending, you can become aware of that still depth of the ocean. But in unity consciousness, all of that coexists where there's this awareness of that stillness of the ocean, but also the awareness of everything that exists as the expression of that stillness. So the awareness that it's all the same essence, it's all the same ocean. So, um, you know, this, this perception of an, an infinite value, an unbounded value... It's not that you can't discern the differences between objects anymore. You know, it would be very difficult to function in this life if you couldn't tell a, a table from a computer or something like that. But, <laughs> but the this perception of unity has become primary, and the differences have become secondary in the awareness. So again, not through mood making, not through through trying to hold an intellectual conception, but just through the very gradual growth, natural development of higher states of consciousness. The whole world is perceived as the expression of that underlying pure consciousness. Wow. So I'm guessing listeners have heard the term enlightenment before. How would you relate that um, concept to the states of consciousness? Uh, great question. Um, basically, it's synonymous with cosmic consciousness. So anything beyond cosmic consciousness is sort of like a, um, a bonus, if you will. But, but the idea is that once you have a permanent state of awareness of that pure consciousness, that you have reached enlightenment, 
and anything else is kind of embellishment because anything else has to do with how you perceive the external world and that's certainly a wonderful and enriching thing but um it what doesn't change from cosmic consciousness onwards is that eternal experience of the self with a capital s or, or that state of pure consciousness that fundamental reality yeah and i think um for me you know one of the um first theories we learned of maharishis was that enlightenment is our birthright right and then if you start to to look back at many of the spiritual traditions outside of the Vedic tradition, right? But, you know, the, the Judeo-Christian tradition and, and a lot of native traditions around the globe, you find um, very similar philosophical teachings, right? You know, the, like Christ was known to have said, the kingdom of God is within you. And, and that, you know, it really helped to reshape my perspective of, you know, maybe what what re organized religion today has maybe made things out to be it's 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 my god and my god alone but if you look back at some of these philosophical teachings what they're m much more saying was that god is everything and everyone and you can access the divine through your own consciousness no i completely agree and it's one of the things that i love about the vedic tradition is that it places a lot of emphasis on universal truths so it's not saying you know, you should follow our culture, you should follow our exclusive ideas. It's saying there are these principles, you'll find them in the deepest parts of every religious tradition, every culture. They're there if you look for them. We're just going to set them out in a systematic way and then you can go find them um, if you want to. So yeah, to, to quote the, the Rig Veda, one of the first Vedic texts, um, truth is one, It is um, the wise speak of it in different ways. So it's that underlying reality is exactly the same, no matter the cultural context. It's just that people use slightly different words to describe it. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it gets into also, you know, as Maharishi, Maharishi described the Ved and Vedic literature, by, by definition, it's natural lie. It can't, be, it can't be lost, right? It might go missing. It might be obfuscated by people who misinterpret it. But the underlying truth of it cannot be lost because it is the natural law of the cosmos. Exactly. Or or you can always use the sun analogy, too, that just because a cloud comes in front of sun, it doesn't mean that the sun's not there anymore. You're just not aware of it so much. You don't experience it so much, <laughs> but it's still there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so I'd be curious, you know, one... Um, what are some of the physiological changes that have been studied as folks get to higher states of consciousness? And then if you'd be open to it, would be curious to hear, you know, any of the changes in your personal life that you've experienced as you've continued the TM practice? Sure. Um, so from the modern science perspective, especially, um, well, we can do both. Um, I was going to say, especially the neurophysiological, but we can talk about the subjective too, because that's also been studied scientifically. Um, so for transcendental consciousness, that fourth state, that state where it's just awareness of pure consciousness alone, so no thoughts, no emotions, no perceptions, um, some of the neurophysiological markers of that are, um, well, one, one is a um, some very slow, soft inhalation, um, so very soft, slow breathing. Originally, when the scientists were noticing this, they thought that the breath had stopped, but it's actually a very slow inhale. Um, but another one that's particularly noteworthy is um, alpha-1 coherence. So there are different brain waves, you know, alpha, beta, gamma, all that. Each of them are associated with a particular type of mental functioning. Um, alpha-1 is uh, associated more with inner wakefulness. Um, and so that's that's the, the most distinctive um, brain wave in the transcendental meditation technique is, is alpha-1. 
And it, it's a coherence between the, um, in the alpha one brave waves, meaning that different areas of the brain are operating in a coherent fashion with each other. They're communicating with each other in a more holistic, harmonious way than usual. Um, and uh, but especially um, alpha one coherence in the prefrontal cortex. So that, that that's um, a distinctive marker of the technique. And then what's interesting is that as that transcendental consciousness begins to become cosmic consciousness, in other words, as it becomes more permanent, more lasting, when it coexists with other, with activity and with thoughts and all, um, you start to see that same alpha one coherence at other times. You see it during difficult computer tasks or during, you know, just a variety of activities and even during sleep. So people who report witnessing sleep who've been meditating for many years if you look at their EEG readings, um, you know, you, you measure the electro electronic uh, readings on their scalps. Um, what you see is delta EEG, so that's the usual marker of deep sleep. But you see on top of that, or coexisting with that, markers of alpha-1 coherence. So you can very clearly see just by looking at the EEG that there's both the alpha-1 and the delta there, which is supporting this idea that the same brain waves that you're cultivating during meditation start to coexist with activity, but then even with deep sleep. Um, and it supports this idea of witnessing sleep. Um, so yeah, um, the growth towards cosmic consciousness is also associated with um, higher brain integration, um, greater emotional stability, uh, gr greater stability during challenging tasks. Um, you know, with some challenging tasks, um, if the brain, like if if you don't know what the next next stimulus is going to be, the brain will be in a more restful state because it realizes there's no need to excite all those resources yet. It doesn't know what the stimulus is. It's not until the stimulus is presented to it that the brain um, becomes you know fully active and engages with that. So you know it's just a more efficient usage of of the consciousness and of the energy and the the intelligence because uh, it's a better a better fit for the situation. Wow, that's really interesting. And then, and now I was curious when, as you were talking about how there's been, you know, studies, obviously a ton done on TM and, and uh, the state of transcendental consciousness. I'm curious, like how how are we able to do uh, um, typical studies on cosmic consciousness, right? Like, do the volunteers have to just just um, I guess state that like, hey, I I am now experiencing cosmic consciousness, and and then we kind of validate that through EEGs. Or I'm I'm curious, like, how does that work? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I mean, one way of looking at it would just be to look at people who've been meditating for a long time and to guess, okay, they're probably growing towards that. At minimum, when we look at their EEG readings, either during TM or during uh, computer tasks, that sort of thing. We're um, we're probably going to see more alpha one coherence from the than with the average person, um, but yes, definitely for especially studies that are looking at witnessing sleep, um, you know the people going into these studies are saying yes, I'm having this experience. Go ahead, we'll we'll verify it um, objectively, but but I am already having this experience of awareness lasting the whole night long. So I think that's the simplest way to develop a a correspondence between the subjective and the objective um, to, to look at the people who are reporting one thing and say, okay, can we back that up objectively? Yeah, that makes sense. How do you think that lucid dreaming could fit into all of that? It's a good question. Um, 
as I understand it, it's not identical to witnessing sleep, but it does seem to be growth in that direction. Um, so lucid, um, just my understanding of lucid dreaming is that it has to do with um, being able to control a dream. So you kind of, rather than just not being, first of all, you're aware you're dreaming, which, you know, on average we're not. But then secondly, having the ability to, to influence how the dream goes and change things, change the world. Um, really fun experience. Um, but it doesn't line up perfectly with the definition of witnessing dreaming because that would be uh, a quiet, uninvolved witness just completely aware of the dream. So it seems like a slightly different thing, but my guess would be it's all growth in the same positive direction. That makes sense. <laughs> and so what has been your own personal journey with uh, um, growth of consciousness? Um, yeah, I would just say that... Through TM, I feel much more anchored, much more um, stable. Um, that, yeah, it is hard to explain. I've been doing it for a long time, so it's a little hard uh, to, 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 you know, describe, you know, when I didn't do it versus when I did. Sure. But, having, <laughs> but you know, certainly times if I have to miss a meditation or something, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't fit right. Uh-huh. Um, you know, just just feeling like there there's a lot more. Um, the stability, the the bliss, I guess, the peacefulness, uh, more and more of that in the daily activity that stressful things can happen on the surface, but there's some degree of a, a witnessing quality that is separate from that, that isn't shaken by that. So, you know, I'm by no means <laughs> claiming to be enlightened, but I, I do do find the technique to be very powerful and it has had a, a profound impact on my life. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts on, you know, what is the Maharishi effect? Um, yeah, so the Maharishi effect, um, Maharishi postulated that um, if people were enlivening this level of pure consciousness within themselves, that that, um, since everything is interconnected from a Vedic worldview, that's going to have an impact on the surroundings. And so if lots of people are doing it, especially together as a group, and if they're not only doing transcendental meditation, but they're doing advanced techniques as well, advanced techniques of consciousness on that basis of the transcendental meditation, that's going to have an even more powerful enlivening effect. And so rather than just being felt on an individual level, it could have perceptible impact on the surrounding environment. And so specifically, he hypothesized that if either um, 1% of a population practiced TM, or if just the square root of 1% of the population practiced a more advanced technique, the TM City program, as a group, so together to, to enhance the effect, that either of those um, circumstances would create measurable, measurably, um, measurable benefits in the surrounding society. So it could be in terms of decreased crime, it could be in terms of improved quality of life, um, decreased accidents, decreased illnesses, decreased suicides. Um, you can often look at it in terms of getting rid of, of negative factors, but also positive indicators as well. Um, you know, more optimistic newspaper headlines, you know, whatever it is, it's going to, to have an impact on that whole surrounding environment. So that was the theory. And then they started testing it and, you know, they did very rigorous tests. They controlled for lots of other factors, you know, weather, you know, other things that could have brought about these effects. Um, and, you know, so it's incredibly rigorously studied, especially for the social sciences um, to, to do studies of the scale. And, and a lot of these studies have been published in mainstream 
scientific journals, which are peer reviewed. So, you know, they had to go through a very, very rigorous uh, process of, of clearing them because obviously the editors coming from a more physicalist mindset were very skeptical. Um, so they had to, you know, probably work much harder than the average person submitting to that article to be able to to verify what they were saying. But in many cases, at, in, at the end of the day, the the editors were like, well, this this the methodology we can't argue with. So we're going to have to print this, even though it goes against our paradigm. We're going to have to print this. Um, so yeah, they, they've done studies um, on cities that have one percent of the population meditating, and you know, comparing those to comparable cities that don't, and looking for um, patterns there. They've also done very specific studies where they bring groups, large groups of um, people practicing the TM City program into an area and measure the impact. Uh, like, for instance, they had the Washington, D.C. demonstration project where a large group of these um, TM City practitioners came together and meditated for many weeks. And they even lodged predictions in advance as to how much the crime would drop as a result of this. Um, and it was funny because uh, the police chief at the time said that, uh, well, for crime to drop this much this time of year, we'd have to have a blizzard, which was, you know, he was basically joking because this was uh, going to take place in July. They weren't going to have a blizzard. But he was like, there's there's no way the crime can drop this much. And it did. It, it, it is, I recall, exceeded the, the expectations for that. So, you know, there's the Washington, D.C. demonstration project. Um, there also have been uh, various um, demonstrations of this effect in uh, the Middle East. Um, uh, for instance, uh, when Lebanon was going through a period of war, um, groups came in of meditators and meditated in the vicinity. And it's really interesting to look at the charts because the size of the meditating group, um, that correlated very closely with the... Um, the level of violence going on, but in a positive direction, as in the higher the size of the meditating group, the lower the violence was. And on days when the group wasn't so big, the violence would go up again. So it's very interesting to see this correlation. Yeah. Um, yeah so again, in all these cases, they're they're looking, they're taking into account possible conflating factors and doing uh, mathema using mathematical approaches to to allow for those things. But even controlling for other effects, they just weren't able to come up with another. Um, another thing that could be causing this effect other than yeah. bringing these groups of meditators in. Yeah. And it's really, really powerful stuff. And I th think even on the, uh, the website that, um, MIU has for explaining Maharishi, the Maharishi effect, it says something about like, you know, we believe this could be the most important field in all of social sciences being studied right now. And I, I totally agree. And, you know, I think as you talk about how those scientific journals that are more materialistic paradigm focused, you know, that it was difficult for them to uh, accept the results, just given that it's so contrary to, you know, their views. But then if, um, I know Dr. Hagelin wrote something that was really helpful for me in kind of getting over that mental hump as well. Right. And it talked about how constructive interference is this universal property of, of all different types of waves, right? You see it with sound waves you see it with light waves. So why would it actually be different for thought waves, which we know, you know, fluctuate in thought, we know can be measured outside of your body. So it's not, it's, it's not, it shouldn't be so hard to wrap our heads around intellectually, but I still, I, I understand that it, 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 it can be a very big hurdle for people to get around that. Wait, my thinking can have an impact on the people around me. Like that seems crazy. Absolutely. I think it can be helpful to talk about these things in, inter um, in um, intervals with people. 
um, starting with some of the smaller studies that have been, for instance, on the effects of one person meditating on someone else in another room. They've done studies of that sort as well and looking at the brainwave coherence um, in those cases. And, you know, these people never interacted. They never even knew the person was in the other room. But the whenever the meditator was meditating, their coherent, there were coherence changes for both people and the coherence changes of the meditator consistently happened first, and then the uh, the person in the other group followed. So there was this like harmony wow. occurring. I think that can be a little easier for people to wrap their heads around before you start talking about entire states or countries or even the whole world being affected by people sitting quietly with their eyes closed. But yeah, um, it does very much have to do with the paradigm and you know the idea of a field effect that if consciousness is just a byproduct of the brain then my brain is separate from your brain. How could my thought waves possibly affect your thought waves? It doesn't make any sense. But if everything is connected on a more fundamental level, if there are field effects, if there's a level, a level where consciousness is united, where consciousness um, goes beyond my body, your body, and extends to all people, people in the vicinity, and, and ultimately in the whole world, then you can have a field effect of consciousness where you're just setting out a ripple on that level where you're already connected. So there's just no mechanism in physicalism for explaining how one person meditating can affect someone else. But once you have a mechanism in mind, like a field effect, then it's a little easier to wrap your head around. Yeah, absolutely. And that gets into also, you know, the phenomenon of remote healing of self-healing of, of healing through prayer right they're they're essentially all exactly the same thing they're they're various field effects of consciousness but again because that doesn't fit into the materialist paradigm i think the response has just always been oh that's nonsense that's woo woo that's that's the placebo effect which i think we should talk about that a little bit more because <laughs> well maybe the placebo effect is actually the fundamental piece of everything that's happening right <laughs> no i'm glad you brought that up with the placebo effect um because i think you're right but um people often misinterpret the placebo effect thinking oh it's just some sort of illusion or fake or something but i think the fundamental point they should be paying attention to is the fact that your consciousness your awareness your state of mind is affecting your body there's really no way to explain that if consciousness is nothing but a, a passive byproduct of the brain, that it, it implies that consciousness has some sort of causal ability, an ability to affect you, and not just other, on a subjective level, not just your other thoughts, but actually your body. So, you know, something like self-healing, that's, that's consciousness, the mind affecting the body, and it, it shows that consciousness must have some, some causal effectiveness and not just be some some shadow of brain functioning yeah absolutely and i'm glad you bring up to the relationship between consciousness uh, and human physiology could you talk a little bit more about that relationship sure um did you mean in terms of like vade and the human physiology exactly. or, okay uh -huh. yeah um so tony nader um dr tony nader um he's another individual in the uh transcendental meditation movement um he kind of have followed in the footsteps of Maharishi. Um, and he looked into, um, well, two things. I need to take a step back here. Um, first of all, I want to talk a little bit about um, pure consciousness. Um, so pure consciousness from a Vedic standpoint has the nature of being conscious, of being aware. Um, but it exists on this level of pure unification, you know, pure, pure, pure unity, nothing outside of itself, pure singularity. And so 
it's conscious, but it can only on that level be conscious of itself. So that is to say that it is the, within the nature of consciousness to be aware of itself, to uh, to interact with itself, to to observe itself, to look back on itself. And so, um, you know, if we're talking about the the origin of of creation of the universe from a Vedic perspective, that concept is, is at the core of that process of creation of this. You, know, you have this pure unity. But then suddenly you have diversity emerging from that unity. You have the diversity of consciousness becoming its own observer, its own object of observation, the process linking the observer and the object. It's all consciousness, but it's assuming these different roles, kind of like the same man can be a, a doctor and a husband and a father. Um, it's kind of the same consciousness, the same entity, but it's assuming these different roles. And from that, you start to have diversity emerging from within unity. Um, the reason I bring that up, um, not to get off on the, the whole, the whole creative process, because that could be a, a whole nother topic, but, um, is that in this process of perceiving diversity within unity, in this coexistence of unity and diversity, there's vibrations or fluctuations within consciousness itself. It, it, this process of self-referral, of self-interaction creates vibrations and those vibrations have a sound quality, you could say. Um, now, sound is a fairly concrete word, and it, it doesn't really capture, because this is, we're talking about a level of reality that exists before the sensory organs. So sometimes Maharishi will say the whisper of the unified field to itself, the whisper of pure consciousness to itself. But you can think of them as sounds. They have, uh, on more expressed levels of reality, they have an actual sound value. Anyway, it's these reverberations or fluctuations of um, pure consciousness interacting with itself. Um, the reason I bring that up is that those are Veda. That's, those reverberations are the sounds of Veda um, at the most fundamental level. And then on more concrete levels, um, then human beings have, um, um, according to the Vedic tradition, they've heard these sounds in their own awareness during meditation, and as they set these sounds down in books, and that gave rise to the Vedic texts, the Vedic literature. Um, anyway, I just needed to, to express a little what I mean when I say Veda, and how that fits into this whole picture. Veda would just be the fluctuations of pure consciousness interacting with itself, and that those sounds can be heard on the level of pure consciousness by human beings, and then human beings can record those sounds in patterns and sequences and so on. So, <laughs> with that background in mind, um, if you look at these different sequences of sounds that have, um, they're associated with the different Vedic texts, um, they have a particular structure to them. Um, so, any, any of the Vedic texts you look at, it could be Rig Veda, it could be Sama Veda, Yajur Veda, Tarva Veda, the Upanishads, you know, many, many different texts here. That we can talk about. But each of those texts is fundamentally a series of sounds and the series of pure consciousness interacting with itself, vibrating within itself. Um, but it has its structure. It has it chapters, um, and then it has sub-chapters, you could say. You know, it's it has a particular arrangement, a particular structure. So going back to Dr. Nader, um, what he did is he looked at the structure of these different branches of the Veda and the Vedic literature. And he compared that to the structure of different parts of the human physiology. Um, so, you know, looking at, um, well, actually, I'll, I'll read you, if you'd like, a, a, an excerpt from my dissertation here. Um, 
Okay, great. Um, so here we go. Nader's, Nader's assertion then is that there is a correspondence between Vade and the Vedic literature and the human physiology in terms of both structure and function. Let us consider an example. Nyaya is one of the 40 branches of Vade and the Vedic literature, according to Maharishi. Its structure consists of five chapters and 16 topics. Nader correlates this structure with that of the thalamus, which similarly has five sections and 16 nuclei. So we see that similarity in structure of one having five chapters and 16 topics, the other having five sections and 16 nuclei. But then continuing, uh, Nader also correlates Nyaya with the thalamus in terms of function. According to Maharishi, Nyaya has the function of distinguishing and deciding. So we're saying that this text, this Vedic text, is associated with particular qualities of consciousness, and specifically those qualities of the ability to distinguish and to decide between different things, these different qualities of awareness. So Nader points out that the thalamus also performs the function of distinguishing, distinguishing and deciding in the sense that it filters sensory and motor input, directing this information to the appropriate brain region. So what Dr. Nader did is he mapped out all the Vedic the branches of the Vedic literature. Marishi recognizes 40 of them. So all these branches to different parts of the human physiology in terms of both structure and function. So showing a similarity both in terms of the numerical structure and also in terms of what they do, what they, how they function, what they produce. Um, and so he did that for the whole human physiology and found this correspondence in each of these areas. And um, the conclusion he came to is that the human physiology, uh, or that Veda is the blueprint of the human physiology, if you will, that these sounds that from a Vedic standpoint, these reverberations that are fundamental to all of reality, can are also reflected within the human nervous system. And so yeah. um, you could say, if you want to use religious terminology, that we're made in the image of God, but we're talking about not in a vague sense, but in a very precise, specific sense, you know, looking at specific areas of the body and how they correlate with these vibrations. Yeah, wow. And that gets into that the whole concept, right, that each individual is cosmic. And I'm glad that you bring up, uh, you know, the image of God idea, right? And I think it again gets back to, um, one, I think God is just a very loaded term for folks just, yeah. you know, in our modern society. And I think a lot of the materialists, when they when they hear that idea, they think that we're saying, oh, we're, we're subservient to some deity outside of us. But But to your point, it's much more profound and technical, frankly, than that, right? That it literally is this perfect replication of the reverberations of consciousness. And would it be fair to almost equate this kind of idea of self-similarity in the Veda to these like fractal patterns that we see throughout nature as well? I would think so, yes. Or the idea of a holographic universe, I would say so, that there are just these patterns that uh, you can see on a very small level or a very large scale. You know, um, in Marishi Vedic science, they talk about... Um, pure consciousness being within every grain of creation. So it wouldn't be at all surprising mm -hmm. to have those same orderly qualities on a very tiny scale as well as a universal scale. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and Dr. Nader also in his book um, uh, gets into the idea of entanglement, obviously what, what 
the podcast is oh. named after and that was um that was also i think a really interesting concept for me to learn more about just given the whole idea of um you know we we know there is something that some force that can you know violate the the laws of the speed of light right and so what is that force why is it so unbelievable to think that it is consciousness right we know there's something there uh-huh. no i think it's a great point um definitely dovetails well with the concept of entanglement again just this idea of everything being connected everything being interrelated on a fundamental level of reality it opens the door to phenomena that otherwise wouldn't make any sense yeah totally and i think that's that's one of the things that can be frustrating for me with our, our conventional science paradigm today is just the hubris of it all, frankly, right? Where it's just like, one, they fail to notice that, you know, I, we're, we're really the only civilization that um, that we know of that has been very materialist, right? All these other traditions believe that there were, you know, beings outside of us and all this realm of the unseen and all of that, right? And then you even think about what we know in modern astronomy and, and we know that most of the universe is dark matter and dark energy, which are really just generic things that for us to describe things we really don't understand at all. So it's like, I, I wish that there was just more generally uh, a willingness to entertain big ideas that, that buck the convention. No, I completely agree. It's especially noteworthy given that a lot of early scientists were actually Christians, um, which isn't to say that, you know, Christianity explains everything, but just with regards to this idea that somehow physicalism is absolutely essential to science. It's like some of the greatest scientists weren't physicalists at all. They, they were coming from a completely yeah. different paradigm. So I think it does undermine that, that hubris, as you call it. Yeah, absolutely. And I even, uh, I, I, it's a great point you bring up. And I read like a Copernicus quote recently about how, you know, once, once he had realized that the geocentric model was wrong, right. And that he lived, that he, heliocentrism made more sense that it just, he, re- he realized that there was this divinity in the universe and just that there was, you know, it just was this huge enlightening moment for him, too. It's really interesting. Definitely. Yeah, those yeah. gestalt switches where one little thing shifts and then suddenly everything makes so much more sense. Yeah. So do you think that we're on the brink of a, of a shift in, in conventional science, right, where, where folks eventually come around to this idea of a consciousness-based paradigm? I do. Um, I I think that there are just more and more anomalies accumulating, and eventually people are going to realize that our mainstream paradigm, although it successfully explains certain areas of life, just isn't sufficient as as a theory of everything, and we're going to have to consider uh, a model that gives, for instance, consciousness a real place in the causal chain. Um, It it just... um, there, there are serious issues with the idea that conscious is nothing but a, ba- a passive byproduct, an epiphenomenon of the brain. I mean, the scientific method itself is based upon conscious functioning. We can't reason, we can't do science without relying on our own consciousness. So we need to have confidence in where that faculty is coming from and that it's not just some you know, passive byproduct that has no no free will, no influence on the world. Um, why would we even think it's constrained by the laws of rationality if it's just um, the result of random brain firings? Um, so, you know, there, there are just serious issues for science in the idea that the consciousness is just an epiphenomenon of the brain. And it, um, I think a, a, a consciousness-based paradigm would address this issue and, and give consciousness a much yeah. stronger place in the scientific method. Yep. 
And this is, uh, you know, they typically refer to it, right, as the hard part problem of consciousness. Right. And uh, to your point, you know, it seems like most, you know, physicalists have just kind of dismissed it and just said, yeah, you know, it just must be something random. But it's, uh, but it does, but it's good to see that even in those circles, you know, it feels like panpsychism has become oh. more of a conversation of topic as well. So people are, are coming around to this realization that, uh, you know, there there is a lot of validity to the consciousness-based model for sure. I think so. I think there's definitely momentum in that direction. Yeah. So, um, Dr. Noble, one one final topic I wanted to make sure to ask you about, you know, as we talk about um, the field effects of consciousness and, and uh, the positive impacts, you know, meditation can have on those around you. I'm curious, you know, what are your views on the viability of world peace, especially in today's climate where, you know, things tend to be escalating in, in a relatively concerning manner geopolitically? Um, well, in terms of my personal view, which certainly dovetails with the Vedic perspective, it, it's very much that we're not going to have that unless we raise consciousness um, on an individual level. Um, it's just as long as people are are stressed and frustrated and, and suffering and struggling in life, then it's going to be very difficult for everyone to coexist harmoniously. And, you know, some people are going to express that by being violent with one another and, you know, having creating all these issues that we see in the world around us. So I just don't see any way around it, but we have to address the, address the root cause, which is consciousness not being high enough. And obviously the most direct way to do that is if everybody could meditate, if everybody could, and, you know, do other practices to, to further their evolution, even just things like promoting their health and, you know, trying to live the best life possible. But also... You know, there seems to be validity to these these group techniques, the Marishi effect and all that, where people can have an effect on other people outside of them. Um, and that's certainly a, an encouraging thought because, you know, I don't think by any means everyone in the world is ready to start having a regular um, meditation practice. Um, I mean, it would be wonderful for them, but I, I don't think they're psychologically ready to do that. And so as long as there are uh, more and more people who are and more and more people who can influence their surrounding environment by meditating, especially in a group context, then there's hope to to turn the tide and have everything working in a more harmonious way across the world. Yep, absolutely. Well, yeah, let's let's hope that we can do that and, and help, you know, make the moves towards a more harmonious world. Here, here. <laughs> well, Krista, thank you again so much. This has been such a blast and uh, great to great to get the chance to chat with you some more. Oh, absolutely. Thanks so much for inviting me. Had a great time. And yeah, great topics. Always fun to sink your teeth into this stuff. Absolutely. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Dr. Noble discussed the seven states of consciousness in this episode, a concept which I wanted to expand upon further. The implications here are profound, yet abstract, so I wanted to pull in some passages from Dr. Craig Pearson's book, The Supreme Awakening, Experiences of Enlightenment Throughout Time and How You Can Cultivate Them. Dr. Pearson is another scholar of Maharishi Vedic Science. In his book, he cites the writings of prophets and mystics across thousands of years and cultures all around the world. The commonalities in their descriptions of experiences of higher states of consciousness are outstanding. This text, again, lends credence to the theory that enlightenment is not a mythical capability possible only of deities, 
rather a physiological state latent within all of us. Here's Dr. Pearson's description of the seven states. Deep sleep state. Sleep is a physical and mental state of rest during which we become inactive and unaware of our surroundings. We spend 75 to 80% of our sleeping time in non-REM rapid eye movement sleep. Most physiological functions slow down. Body temperature, body pressure, and breathing rate all drop. Sensory and motor activity become suspended. Voluntary muscles become inactive, and we become totally or partially unconscious. The brain, however, remains active throughout sleep, as active, according to some studies, as during waking. Dreaming state. At various periods during sleep, we enter the dream state, the illusory, unpredictable world where familiar laws of nature release their hold and anything can happen. Improbable shifts in time and place, unfamiliar of combinations of people and events. Most dreaming takes place in REM sleep, comprising about 25% of our sleep time. Brainwave activity during REM sleep resembles that of the waking state, except that the brain inhibits signals to the muscles so that we cannot act out during our dreams. Sleeping and dreaming are critical for our physical and emotional health. Each stage of sleep furnishes important benefits, whether regarding neurons, generating new synaptic connections in the cerebral cortex, processing memories, or integrating what we learned during the day. The brain's activity during sleep may also support creativity and assist problem solving. Waking state. The waking state is the familiar, ever-changing world of concrete sensory experience of people and places, things and events. From the outer world we perceive through our senses to the inner world of thoughts and feelings, our waking state experience is in constant flux while physiological functioning is more active. Our perception of reality may vary enormously through the day depending on whether we are rested or tired, calm or agitated, attentive or bored, happy or depressed, healthy or ill. Transcendental Consciousness, the fourth state of consciousness. In this state, attention has settled inward beyond perceptions, thoughts, and feelings. What remains is the experience of consciousness in its pure form, awake to itself alone, unbounded, pure awareness, our innermost self. Simultaneously, the body becomes deeply restful while brain functioning becomes integrated, suggesting the total brain is awake. Cosmic Consciousness, the fifth state of consciousness. With regular experience of transcendental consciousness, the mind and body become accustomed to the style of functioning. One maintains unbounded awareness, the fully expanded state of mind at all times, along with waking, dreaming, and sleeping. The physiology is now free of stress and brain functioning remains integrated throughout the day. With consciousness fully expanded and open to the unified field, one lives in accord with natural law. One's actions are spontaneously life-nourishing, and one fulfills desire without strain. God consciousness, or refined cosmic consciousness, the sixth state of consciousness. The next phase of growth involves refinement of perceptual abilities. One gains the ability to perceive finer, subtler strata of creation. In time, one perceives the very finest material structure, indescribably radiant, glorious, celestial. Maharishi calls the state God consciousness because it brings direct perception of the full range of God's creation. Fully matured, this state brings the direct experience of the creator. Unity consciousness, the seventh state of consciousness. Human development culminates in the ability to experience all things in terms of their innermost essence, the underlying oneness from which all creation emerges. 
This is the same oneness we experience deep within when we transcend. Pure consciousness, the unbounded self. In unity consciousness, the pinnacle of human evolution, one experiences everything in terms of oneself, all activity in the universe as simply the self moving within itself. One lives a totally awakened and totally integrated life with the ability to know anything, do anything, and achieve anything. Dr. Pearson goes on to expand on the qualitative characteristics of the waking state versus transcendental consciousness, known in Sanskrit as samadhi. In waking consciousness, one's eyes are generally open. One's attention is directed outward. Consciousness is object referral, absorbed in perceptions, thoughts, or feelings. The mind is active, excited, constantly moving, its contents ever-changing. Consciousness is localized, bound by objects it perceives. Consciousness is fragmented. The three values of knower, process of knowing, and known are separated. Only the surface of the mind is awake. The mind is using only a fraction of its potential creativity and intelligence. One is aware only of one's localized individual self. The mind has access only to partial values of natural law. Brainwave activity is random and shifting, indicating only localized communication. The body is engaged in some degree of activity. On the other hand, in transcendental consciousness, the eyes are generally closed. Attention has settled inward. Consciousness is self-referral, absorbed in itself, aware of itself alone, its own object of perception. Consciousness is still, silent, an ocean of pure wakefulness with no content other than its own non-changing, unbounded nature. Consciousness is unbounded, universal. Consciousness is unified. Pure consciousness is the knower of itself. Knower, knowing, and known are unified. The mind is awake at its source. The mind is open to its total potential and unlimited reservoir of creativity and intelligence. One's universal, unbounded cosmic self is now awake within itself. The mind is open to the total potential of natural law, the unified field. Brain functioning is coherent and integrated, indicating long-range communication among all brain regions. The body is deeply restful and is dissolving fatigue and stress. Through the integration of the unified field in TC with the daily activity of the waking state, one's nervous system can eventually become refined to a state of permanent enlightenment known as cosmic consciousness. Here's Maharishi Mahesh Yogi explaining how this process works. This is a related question, Maharshi, from a freelance newspaper writer. Maharshi, you have spoken of individual consciousness and also of cosmic consciousness. By what means does individual consciousness interact with cosmic consciousness? Through meditations, through transcendental meditation. Because transcendental meditation is very simple, it's very, very simple. It's such a simple thing. We just close the eyes and learn from the teacher. In two, three days, one learns from the teacher. And then this is a very direct way to enter the treasury, supposing. You go to a bank, you enter the treasury, and from there, you shake hands with the bank manager and come out with pockets full. Like that, transcendental field of life is pure cosmic intelligence. So a dip into that through transcendental meditation 
and the mind comes out fresher from there. Mind, as you put a white cloth in yellow dye, it comes out yellow. So mind comes to transcendental consciousness, comes out with that quality of transcendental consciousness. And transcendental consciousness is one level of reality at the basis of all life, at the basis of all life. So, in this way, transcendental meditation is a direct means, is a direct procedure to communicate with the cosmic intelligence, higher intelligence, higher intelligence. And then we are in higher intelligence. We are led by higher aspirations, by more ability to accomplish our desires, all those things. Dr. Pearson goes on to compare the experience of cosmic consciousness, the fifth, versus waking state consciousness. In typical waking consciousness, consciousness is active, excited. The mind is localized, absorbed in, and bound by ever-changing perceptions, thoughts, memories, feelings. Ordinary waking consciousness is a state of bondage. Only the surface of the mind is awake. Consciousness is lost during sleep. The mind uses only a fraction of its potential creativity and intelligence. One is aware only of one's localized individual self. Brainwave patterns are continuously changing. The mind has access only to partial values of natural law, and one enjoys only partial support of nature in fulfilling desires. The body is engaged in some degree of activity. Physiological stresses and strains inhibit the experience of the self. Happiness is transitory, superficial. The mind moves ever in search of greater happiness. In cosmic consciousness, consciousness is active and excited at its surface, but remains ever awake and non-active at its silent source. The mind maintains unbounded awareness even while aware of ongoing mental activity. Cosmic consciousness is a state of liberation. The depth of the mind is awake and remains awake, even while the mind's surface shifts among waking, dreaming, and sleeping. Inner wakefulness is maintained in sleep. The mind is fully expanded, its full creative potential ever lively and awake. One is established in the unbounded self. Cosmic consciousness is a state of self-realization. Brainwave activity is highly coherent and integrated. The total potential of natural law, the unified field, is ever awake deep within, and one enjoys full support of nature in fulfilling desires. One level of physiological functioning remains restful even while another level is active. The body is virtually free of stress. Any incoming stress is quickly dissolved. Cosmic consciousness is a state of supreme contentment, 24-hour bliss. Pearson expands upon the process of transcending and the development of cosmic consciousness into even higher states of consciousness. In the process of transcending, starting from the waking state, as one transcends, one experiences finer and finer levels of thought. Eventually, the mind reaches the finest level of thought, the level from where thought first emerges from pure consciousness. Then the mind transcends even the finest level of thought and identifies with pure consciousness itself, the higher self deep within. This is transcendental consciousness. Then in growth to unity consciousness, starting from cosmic consciousness, 
Once senses become increasingly refined, one perceives finer and finer levels of the outer material world. Eventually, one is able to perceive the finest level of nature, the subtlest stratum of creation, from where the relative first emerges from the unified field. This perception defines God-consciousness. As consciousness continues to develop, one moves beyond even the finest relative and experiences pure consciousness, the higher self, as the reality of everything. This is unity consciousness. Finally, Pearson compares transcendental consciousness to the highest level of refinement, unity consciousness, the seventh. In transcendental consciousness, the senses are turned inward and are then transcended. Transcendental consciousness is a self-referral state in which consciousness is aware of itself alone. In transcendental consciousness, one experiences pure consciousness as one's innermost self. Transcendental consciousness is a temporary state. It is lost when the mind becomes active again and the senses turn outward. The experience of transcendental consciousness marks the beginning of growth towards higher states of consciousness. Then in unity consciousness, there is no longer any distinction between inner and outer. Unity consciousness is a self-referral, self-interacting state in which consciousness knows itself as the reality within everything. In unity consciousness, one experiences pure consciousness, the self of everything. Unity consciousness is a permanent state. Whether the mind is active or silent, one experiences the self in all things and all things in the self. Unity consciousness marks the culmination of growth towards higher states of consciousness, the pinnacle of human development. In this conversation, Dr. Noble and I discussed several arguments in favor of a consciousness-based cosmology over a materialistic one. One of the additional criticisms I have of the materialist paradigm is that many of its proponents have failed to consider the possibility of novelty. That just because one has not yet experienced these higher states of consciousness directly, it does not mean that one is incapable of experiencing them. Quite the contrary. To me, the implications of Maharishi's teachings regarding the seven states of consciousness and Vedic science more broadly cannot be understated. The profoundness of these lessons to me is twofold. First, Maharishi revitalized the intricate knowledge of the Vedic literature connecting its teachings to the paradigm of Western science so that his theories could be studied using the modern scientific method. And two, Maharishi taught the practice of transcendental meditation as a simple, direct way to experience these higher states for oneself. As I've learned more about higher states of consciousness intellectually and experienced them directly, I've also found that my third eye chakra has opened wider. So I continue to recognize the natural law of consciousness intuitively as well. This multifaceted approach to consciousness is worthy of further investigation by the broader scientific community. The collective development of consciousness will in turn benefit every aspect of society.